Glad you guys are here. My name is Kevin Twitt. I am the campus minister with RUF, which is one of the Christian organizations here on campus. We actually have our main meeting just off campus on Wednesday nights, typically. We're not doing it tonight, of course, because you all are going on fall break. Um, But one of the things that RUF is committed to is the idea that Christians need to be need to be continually reformed by God's Word. And one of the things that I always think is helpful to do in convos, especially faith development convos, whether you're a Christian or not, I want you to better understand what Christianity teaches. And I think that Christians, including myself, need to continually go back to the Scriptures uh, and examine maybe some of the ideas that they've believe, some of the things that have been passed down to them by other Christians, some of the things that just seem to be the common way that Christians look at things. Sometimes when you actually look at the Bible, you find that the Bible has a different perspective than what Christians have. Um, And I I suspect that we're going to find that today. This issue of God's will, knowing God's will, is a really interesting concept to talk about. I have a lot of books. I'm a a lover of old books. Kind of, I guess it was my senior year of college, that I really had a kind of a faith renewal when I started to actually get more serious about studying what I believed and why I believed it. Um, I, was a, I was a senior at Berkeley College of Music, being, studying recording engineering and guitar and all that stuff, and yet I found just this, I just had this voracious appetite to read books, and it's, it's continued over the years. Eventually I did go to seminary, but for years I thought I'd never go to seminary. If I wanted to learn something, I was going to have to study it on my own. In some ways, I actually think I, I learned more studying on my own and following little, you know, trains of thought where they would go. But the point I'm trying to make from this is I probably got now, by this point, you know, maybe some four or five thousand books. And I'll tell you, I can't think of a single book I have before the middle of the, or even since the 60s or 70s, before the 1960s or 70s, that deals with the question of knowing God's will. I certainly don't have any, and I've got a lot of older books. I really tend to like older books better than newer books. I've got lots of older Christian books, and I can't think of a single one that's devoted solely to the topic of knowing God's will. And yet, you know, in the section of my library that I have on kind of God's leading and knowing God's will, I've got a a ton of books from the last 20, 30 years about that topic. And I think it's very interesting to think about why is it that there's been kind of an explosion of interest among Christians in these kinds of books, whereas your grandparents' generation really didn't obsess about it or think about it very much. And the interesting thing is, if you examine all of the ancient documents that we have, that archaeologists have found, all of the documents, I'm not talking about just Christian documents, I'm talking about documents in general, all the things that archaeologists have uncovered over the years, 80% of all the ancient documents that we have, or fragments of documents that we have, deal with how do we know the will of the gods. 80% of all the documents deal with this. What that means is that this has been an obsession with human beings for millennia. And not just among Christian cultures, but among all cultures. And yet, something happened where Christians really didn't seem to obsess over it very much for generations and generations, but now more recently 
have, have just seen an explosion of books about this. And here's my basic contention. I think the obsession, the recent obsession with Christian books and Christian people with knowing God's will is born more out of perfectionism and more out of an approach to the Bible that looks for little rules and little techniques that is more akin to what the Bible calls pagan, pagan religion than it is Christianity. Say that again. What I'm, what I'm going to contend today is that most of the techniques and, and things that Christian books today talk about as ways to know God's will really have more to do with paganism and the pagan techniques that the Bible condemns than they do with Christianity. And the one thing that we've really lost in Christian understanding in general is this idea that God is our Heavenly Father who reveals Himself to His children. To hear many Christians talk about knowing God's will, to read most of the Christian books on the topic, you would think that Christians believe that God is playing little games with us, or that He's kind of, he's kind of done one of these like sort of maze puzzles and, and you have to acquire a certain amount of skill in being able to solve the puzzle and read the little signs to figure out God's will. Or you have to develop some kind of spiritual intuition where you just seem to be able to sense what he's leading you to do. Or it's in some circles that you need to actually hear audible words from God to know what you should do. But all these situations, the emphasis, what these techniques tend to imply is that God, God is, is not trying to reveal himself, more he's trying to hide his will, and we have to figure out how to pry it out of him, or how to read the very limited little bit of information that he gives to try to figure it out. I, I mean, I think a lot, of, a lot of Christians, to hear them talk, seem to think that knowing God's will is like walking into a room and figuring out where is the switch, and once you figure out where it is and you turn it on, boom, everything's clear to you. The Bible never never promises that sort of thing. In fact, you know, a more fitting analogy to what the Bible has to say is that knowing God's will are more like car headlights in the middle of the night. That as you drive a little farther, you see a little more. But it's, there's never a, a, a switch that you turn on that lights up the whole room. Not only that, but the Bible does not regard God's will as this sort of thing where if you get off the path at all, Number one, you have to try to figure out where the path is. And then if you get off of it all, your life is ruined. And he can't work in your life. He can't bring blessings into your life because somehow you've thwarted his will. That that is so far removed from the picture the Bible gives of a heavenly father who is sovereign and good. Now, now let's let's talk about this a little bit. There's a a guy, an Old Testament professor, Bruce Waltke, who's made quite a study of this. And if you want to read a book that that really develops this idea that most Christian techniques about discerning God's will are based more on paganism than Christianity, which I'm going to talk more about in a little bit. But his book really details that a lot more. Um, But he says this, and and I, I like the way he puts it. He says, when I hear Christians talking about the will of God, they often use phrases such as, if only I could find God's will, as though he's keeping it hidden from them. Or, quote, I'm praying that I'll discover his will for my life. Because they apparently believe the Lord doesn't want them to find it. Or that he wants to make it as hard as possible for them so that they will prove their worth. Unfortunately, these concepts do not mesh with the balance 
of Scripture. So this is not just my idea. This is one of the preeminent Old Testament scholars and one of the preeminent scholars of the ancient Near East and archaeology and other religions saying basically Christians have really misunderstood this idea of knowing God's will. And the reason I think this is helpful for us to consider, because I understand a lot of y'all probably aren't Christians. I know that. I know Belmont is, you know, a Christian university, but they don't require any kind of profession of faith for you to become a student here. But I think, you know, Christianity is still quite a powerful influence in our world. I think it's helpful for Christians and non-Christians to better understand what Christianity is. And so, um, you, you know, if you're not a Christian, don't, don't think I'm assuming that. But when I think of convos, like faith development convos, I think of, the, you know, kind of the tack I take is, I'm going to explain Christianity for the good of the Christians and those who aren't Christians, whether they're seeking Christianity, trying to understand it more or not, it's helpful for everybody to be better informed about what it is. And I think one of the, one of the barriers to people taking Christianity seriously, and here I'm talking to Christians, is the way we talk about knowing God's will and how far removed it is from what the Bible actually has to say about this topic. All right, so that's my contention. So what are some of these techniques? that are, are pretty standard um, ideas that you hear evangelical Christians talking about. What are some of these techniques that I think should be challenged upon biblical grounds? Well, let me, let me go through a few of them. First is this idea of peace in your heart. How often have you heard people pray something to the effect of, Lord, let, let the peace of, of so-and-so's heart guide them? in what they should do. Or people will say, well, I'm really praying about this. I'm praying about going to grad school, but the Lord just hasn't given me a peace about it yet. Where they're using this idea of the peace and having a subjective peace in their heart as really the compass by which they should determine what God is leading them to do. I I imagine that probably most every Christian in this room thinks that that's basically what you need to do when you're faced with a life decision. The idea that you're to pray and wait until you have, quote-unquote, peace in your heart to guide you into what you should do. Now, the Bible does promise peace that passes understanding. It does. But if you look at the context of what that's talking about, it has nothing to do with life decisions and understanding whether you go to grad school or who you're supposed to marry or what job you're supposed to take. The Bible, that phrase is not talking about that at all. What it basically is saying is, let the peace that has been established between God and man, the peace that's been established by the life and death of Jesus Christ, may that reign and rule in your heart. That's the peace that's being talked about. May everything that you think be dominated by this sense that God has made peace between himself and man through the life and death of Jesus Christ. That's really the central tenet of what Christians believe. That's what the context is talking about that. The Bible never lifts up the idea of peace, whatever that means, as the umpire to help you know what you're supposed to do. And yet, I suspect almost every Christian I've ever talked to is trying to figure out how to determine if they have peace in their heart about a decision. The problem with this, of course, is that living by faith usually feels more like death than it feels like peace. And all I have to do is point you to the example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says, as he agonized over going to the cross, which he knew was God's will for his life because the scriptures foretold that this needed to happen. 
And his whole life was shaped and dominated by what the Scripture said needed to happen. As he's agonizing in the garden, the Bible says that his sweat poured out like great drops of blood. This is the picture of turmoil. Jesus agonizes there. He prays, Father, if this cup can pass for me, if there be any other way for salvation to be accomplished other than me going to the cross, then let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So what do you see there? You see a picture of Jesus agonizing over God's will, not trying to figure out what to do, but actually finding the courage to do it. But I submit to you that Jesus does not depend upon peace in his heart to determine whether he should go on to the cross or not. He has anything but peace and warm fuzzies in his heart as he contemplates going to the cross. He goes to the cross because he knows it's God's will because of what the scripture says, not because he has a subjective peace in his heart. To think that peace in your heart is the test for what you should do is to depart from what the Bible says. It never says that. It never directs us to that. Not only that, again, connected to this idea, is living by faith, the Bible says, usually feels like death. Remember a few years ago, a guy called me up. He'd written a book called Choosing God's Best. I won't ask if anybody's read it. It's a book about dating and advocating courtship instead of dating. And some of you may have been around Christians enough to know that that's a little debate within Christian circles. Um, A lot of people, and this book, I, I read the book. It's really kind of a dreadful book, honestly. It's a book that basically says dating is responsible for every social ill that we have, and if people would quit dating and pursue courtship, that all of life would be fine, and we wouldn't need any fear um, in our life. It's kind of crazy. But anyway, this guy calls me up, and this is before I'd read the book, just simply on the title, Choosing God's Best. He says, you know, I'm coming to a big church here in town. I won't tell you which one. He was coming here to do a, a conference for college students based on the principles of his book, and I, he said, you know, would you like to bring your students? And I said, well, tell me what, you know, this idea, choosing God's best. How do you know what God's best is? And he said, well, you know, I pretty much agree with, you know, we're talking on the phone. He goes, I pretty much agree with Henry Blackaby. Have you ever read the book Experiencing God? Which was really all the rage here about five years ago. I don't know if people still read it much. But it really was this, this idea. He said, I believe, you know, basically you pray and God gives you peace in your heart. And that's how you know what God's best is. I said, really? I find that living by faith often feels like death. (laughs) And you just hear silence on the end of the phone. This guy's categories just were blown away. He couldn't contemplate the idea that God's best would actually not feel good. I said, what? Are you reading the same Bible? He's reading the same Bible? The Bible teaches that there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, you know this? It leads to death. Does that seem like the Bible is saying, pick the way that feels right? No, it's saying just the opposite. Generally, if if you take what the Bible says about the human heart, for instance, Jeremiah says it's deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? If you take that idea seriously, then you you might be inclined to agree with the hymn writer John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He said basically the mature Christian is the one who's been deceived by their heart so many times that eventually they get to the point that whatever their heart tells them to do, they figure they should probably do the opposite. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that John Newton's right, but I'm saying that 300 years ago, Christians did not think that following their heart 
was the way to know what God was leading them to do. They actually thought that their heart was probably to be less trusted than anything at all. So, should you follow peace in your heart? I would suggest the Bible doesn't lift that up at all and actually gives us a lot of contrary examples that really challenge the idea that peace in your heart is the way that you should find God's will. How about this idea of laying out a fleece? You ever heard this idea? You may not have heard it called that, but it's the idea that I'm going to set up little tests for God, and if he comes through, then I'll know that I should, that I should do this or do that. It comes from a story in the book of Judges, where there's a guy named Gideon. God tells him to do something, and rather than do what God says, now he did have the benefit of God speaking to him audibly, telling him what to do, and yet still, he says, well, I need a little extra confirmation, so I'm going to lay out this lamb's fleece, okay? And I, I forget which comes first. He, he says either, you know, let dew fall all around the ground and the fleece remain dry. And then the next time he says, let the dew come on the fleece and the ground remain dry. He does both. And, and God actually condescends to, to do what he asks. But it really is an example of God condescending. Gideon, the book of Judges is clear in its perspective on this topic, Gideon should have done what the Lord said without laying out a fleece. The Bible does not suggest that Christians are to lay out a fleece. As a matter of fact, the Bible condemns putting God to the test. Do you remember? Jesus said, a wicked generation demands a sign, and no sign will be given. The Bible regards you putting God to the test as an example of unbelief, not faithfulness. So, for instance, when you say, well... You know, I think that God really maybe wants me to do X, so I'm going to basically, if I walk down the, on my way walking to school today, if I see so-and-so person, then I know that I'm supposed to marry him, <laughs> or something like that. Um, th- this this kind of idea is really ridiculous. It basically puts you in the position of prescri- prescribing to God what he needs to do. It puts him in the position of being your servant. That's a big problem for Christians to do that. It's not at all the way we are to regard our God. Laying out a fleece is nowhere lifted up as the thing or the way we're to do it, okay? Um, how, about, how about some other types of signs? Now here's, you know, I'm gonna summarize Waukee's whole book in this one, one little point. And if you wanna, if, you wanna um, if you're more interested in this, I, I commend his book to you, it's really fascinating. But he suggests this, that the little techniques that we use to try to convince God to tell us what to do are the modern, modern parallel to what the Old Testament calls the practice of divination, that were the obsession of ancient kings. The ancient kings are obsessed with divination and figuring out what is the will of the gods. Again, we have numerous, numerous documents describing this and talking about this, numerous treaties um, on various techniques to figure out God's will. And they resorted to all kinds of crazy things. One of the most popular one was what's called hepatoscopy, which is the study of an animal's liver. You would slaughter an animal and look at its liver and try to figure out God's will or the God's will from that. And, you know, there's elaborate books written about this from the ancient world. It was a very popular idea. Slaughter an animal, examine the liver, and you can figure out what you're supposed to do. And, of course, they often would suggest slaughtering numerous animals to see if you could get confirmation about what you're supposed to do. They also did things like casting lots 
or arrows. They would throw an arrow up in the air, or they would shoot it up in the air and see which way it landed and try to determine, should I, if it goes this way, then the answer is yes, or it goes this way, the answer is no. It's like the little eight ball you know, thing, right? Have you ever seriously used the eight ball to try and figure out what you're supposed to do with your life? That's, that's about the kinds of ridiculous things that people would do. Or they would cast lots. In other words, cast lots would be where you say, here we have, I've got an issue, a moral dilemma. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I wait? You would basically write on a little piece of paper every possible answer, and then you would put it in a hat, and you would shake it up, and you would pick one of those out and suggest and believe that the gods were going to lead you through lots. That's what the casting of lots is all about. But here's what, um, here's what Walkie says. God is not a magic genie. The use of promise boxes. Anybody ever had a promise box? I had one when I grew up. I don't know if these are very popular anymore. I remember my mom gave me a promise box. It was basically a little, pla- little plastic box, and on little, little cards were written different promises from the Bible. And you were supposed to basically open it up and pick one out for the day and trust that God had led you that way. Or the idea that you know, sometimes people basically just flip open the Bible and close their eyes and point to a passage, and that's how they know what God's leading them to do. Have you ever known people to do that sort of thing? Um, He's talking about the list of the use of promise boxes or flipping open your Bible and pointing your finger or relying on the first thought to enter your mind after a prayer are unwarranted forms of Christian divination. The reliance of special signs from God is the mark of an immature person, someone who simply cannot believe the truth is presented but must have a special miraculous symbol or sign as a symbol of authority from God. There's this funny story preachers like to tell sometimes about the guy who was contemplating what to do with his life, and he was really discouraged. And he opened up the Bible and closed his eyes and pointed, and he came upon the verse, Judas went and hung himself. (laughs) And he said, oh no, what am I going to do? And he closes the Bible and he does it again, and he hits upon the verse where Jesus says, what you are about to do, go and do quickly. (laughs) You know, I I mean, it's really ridiculous, that sort of thing. There's a great example, actually, there was um, one point, um, John Wesley actually was a big believer in casting lots. Um, he was a great man in a lot of ways, but this was definitely a flaw in his understanding of Christianity. There was one point at which he had promised another, a friend of his that he would take over this congregation. George Whitfield was his friend. George Whitfield had left England to come over to Georgia and over the United States to do on a preaching tour to raise money for an orphanage in Georgia that he'd started. And he left his congregation in, in, in the care of John Wesley, and he said, you know, there's this issue that we debate about, um, about God's sovereign grace. And Wesley and Whitfield knew that they disagreed on that issue. And Whitfield said to Wesley, all I ask is that you don't preach about that topic. You know it'll just upset everybody. Um, please don't do that. And Wesley said, okay. And then Wesley basically decided to cast lots to decide whether or not he should preach on that topic. And the lot came up, not just preach, but preach and print. So even though he'd promised his friend he wouldn't do this, because the lot came up, preach and print, he not only preached a sermon about this issue, but he printed it. Again, what is it, what is it that's going to determine for you what you're supposed to do with your life? I mean, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But if you cast a lot and it tells you to break your promise, should that overrule what God's word says? I mean, sometimes people say, well, you know, I think God's really leading me to grad school. And, you know, if you like to mess with people, you might say, well, huh, the book of Romans says, owe no debt to anyone except the debt of love. So 
Do you need to go into more and more debt to do that? Now, I know that that's kind of an issue um, to think about school loans, and probably most of you have school loans, but I, I'm not saying that, that you just take that and say, okay, I shouldn't do anything that will require me to go into debt, but you should at least think about it. And if somebody says, no, I haven't thought about it, it's not even worth considering because I know God wants me to go to grad school. And I just say, well, how do you know? And how do, how do you know? And do the scriptures have anything to say about it? All right, well, let, let, me, let me move on. Here's one that, usually when I do this, this convo, this is the one that generates the most controversy. And um, I'm actually pretty close to done, so we'll be able to ask some questions. And this may be the issue you want to talk about. But what about this idea about getting a word from the Lord more specifically? Some Christians believe that we should expect God to speak words to us through prophets or through somebody with the gift that they would call a word of knowledge. Now, this is an issue, really, we could take a whole convo to talk about this issue and what the Bible has to say about this, but I'm going to offer a thought or two about this because it does relate to this issue of how do you know God's will, because some Christians claim that that's the way you know that God speaks words of knowledge or uses prophets to tell you what to do. Uh, here's, here's what the Bible would say. Anyone who would claim to speak on God's behalf as a prophet or even somebody delivering a quote-unquote word of knowledge from the Lord must grapple with the test laid down in Deuteronomy 18. And what the Bible says is that Moses was authenticated before all of God's people publicly as his spokesman. All of Israel at Mount Sinai heard the Lord's voice, saw these miraculous signs that God used to testify and to tell the people, I am speaking to Moses. Now, for some of you that may be so supernatural you can't believe that, but I'm saying this is what the Bible says. Then the Bible says that Moses went up on the mountain, received revelation from God. And part of that revelation included how God's people were to know in the future after Moses died if God was speaking through a particular prophet or not. Because he said, the Bible says prophets are going to come along who are going to claim to be speaking from God. How will you know if they really are? And here's what Deuteronomy 18 says. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, this would be a true prophet, I will myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. So false prophets are supposed to be put to death. That's a pretty serious deal. You may say to yourself, verse 21, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? And here's the answer. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. And backing up a few verses, you're to put him to death. That's a pretty serious deal. Uh, I remember a friend of mine who's a Christian musician, rather abrasive personality, um, as you'll get from this story, but he was doing a concert one time and somebody stood up in between songs and said, Brother, I have a word from the Lord for you. And my friend said, Really? Picked up his Bible and says, Tell me what chapter and what verse. The guy said, no, 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 it's not like that. This is a word directly from the Lord. My friend said, well, brother, then we've got an issue to deal with. Because either I need to write down what you say and put it in my Bible, or we need to stone you as a false prophet. So I'm all ears. <laughs> you know, what, what have you got to say? We don't, I, I think sometimes people sort of do this in a way where they think they're not being manipulative, but they really are. To presume to speak on God's behalf is a very serious thing. We use it way too casually. 
Now, I, sometimes people use this phraseology, and they don't really literally mean that God has given them a word, but they, they kind of act that way. And they tell their friends, basically, I think I know what God wants you to do. And the question is, how? And, and be very careful that you're not speaking presumptuously, because it's a very serious deal. What the Bible lays down here in Deuteronomy 18 is that prophets are to be known by the fact that whatever they say comes true. And when you actually look at the various Old Testament prophets, you find numerous, numerous examples of them making short-term, verifiable predictions that can be authenticated. In other words, Isaiah has 25 chapters. The first 25 chapters of the book are these prophecies against all these other surrounding nations to Israel of short-term, verifiable predictions so that God's people will know that Isaiah is a true spokesman for God. And he lays down this, this real kind of gauntlet in the book saying the false prophets don't know the future, but God does. And he, he aims to prove it by laying down specific prophecies about nations that people will able to see whether or not what he says is true. And you see that over and over and over again. Jeremiah does the same thing when he prophesies about a guy, in six months you'll be dead. He doesn't, see, well, you don't see Old Testament prophets saying to a, a room of people, I think somebody here has a skin disease. Or there's somebody named Mark who had, that kind of vaudeville showmanship is not at all what biblical prophets do. Biblical prophets speak the word of God into a cultural situation. They also speak about the future in specific, verifiable ways. And so I challenge you, if you believe that God is still giving words of knowledge or is still using prophets today, do they fit the test laid down by Deuteronomy 18? Next, so what am I saying? Am I saying that all you do is read the Bible and just use your mind? Do I believe in any sort of supernatural guidance? And the question is, yes, I do. But I believe that God still guides us through the Word. Though that means more than just you finding a verse in the Bible. I do think that the, that the Lord uses impressions, in a sense, that are connected to the Word and what the Word of God says. I do think that the Lord can help you be reminded of principles from the Word or particular scriptures by your friends and their counsel. I think that there is certainly a supernatural element to this. And the Bible teaches that, and I'm going to say that in a minute here in point, point four. But let me just say something else. Um, I think really the, the great reason, as I mentioned in the introduction, that Christians are obsessed with this issue, and the reason that Christians resort to all these crazy techniques is because at their root, they're dominated by perfectionism. And I'll tell you one thing about perfectionists. They can't make decisions. And what you find so often in the evangelical church is perfectionists are trying to spiritualize their indecision. They're trying to spiritualize their indecision. They're saying things like, I'm waiting on the Lord because they feel like I don't want to make a bad decision. Therefore, I want to know absolutely certainly what I'm supposed to do. But the Bible never promises that kind of certainty. The Bible tells you that you need to step out in faith. And it's it's really twisted to try to spiritualize what really is a flaw called perfectionism. The idea that until I know perfectly what to do, I shouldn't do anything? No. That's perfectionism. That's not spirituality. 
And yet so often this character flaw really gets turned into a sign of maturity. Like, I know a lot of Christians who feel like, man, if I was really mature, I would just wait on the Lord and I would just pray about it, (laughs) you know? Um, The Lord says you should love your enemies. Well, I'm going to pray about that. What are you going to pray about? You know, how much of God's will do you really want to know? First Thessalonians says it's the Lord's will that you flee sexual, sexual immorality. You don't have to pray about that. You may have to pray for courage, but you don't have to pray about what the Lord wants you to do in that situation. The Lord has given us plenty of his will in the Bible. And, and I find it really fascinating that people don't really care that much about that, but they want sort of like personal designer Um, revelation for their life and what they're supposed to do with the idea that if I only knew God's will, my life would go smooth, which is a really ridiculous assumption because the path of discipleship, the Bible regards as the narrow path, right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path of life, okay? So I ask you to think about perfectionism. You know, does the Bible ever promise to give you guidance about who you're to marry, where you should go to school, what you're to major in, what your career is to be about. And I know this is an important issue for y'all at this stage in life. What does the Bible say about this? Well, here's a couple thoughts. The first I I think you need to understand is the real challenge to knowing God's will is not knowing it, it's having the courage to do it. Without a doubt, the real problem for Christians is not figuring out the Lord's will as much as it is finding the courage to do it. I I think it's really bizarre that we seem to have this idea that if we could just figure out what the Lord's will is, we would just jump on it and we would do it. Because again, the Bible gives us all kinds of concrete examples of God's will for his people that we don't care about and we don't want to do. And, and, And rather than try to obey that, we're trying to find out, you know, who should I marry? That's not an unimportant decision. But... Fleeing sexual immorality is clearly, clearly laid out as God's will. And other, lots of other things. So what does the Bible actually promise in terms of guidance? I remember in seminary, uh, in a class, I was, we were challenged to search all of the Psalms and wisdom literature, which are generally the places that people look to to find passages about God's guidance. S- searching all of the Psalms and wisdom literature, dealing with what it has to say on the topic of guidance. And I will tell you, There's not a single passage in the Psalms or the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon that that promises God guiding you in particular life decisions. Every passage that gets invoked as a passage or a promise that God will lead you into the way you're to go always has to do with deliverance from danger or trials or leading you into the way of righteousness, not where you're supposed to go to school. Seriously, you can can look up every passage in your concordance having to do with God's leading. They all have to do with ethical issues and with him delivering you from situations. None of them are promising the kind of guidance that Christians are trying to get from all these little techniques. So what does the Bible say about God's will? Proverbs 16, verse 1 and verse 9, really summarize what it says. And I I put one of these down here for you. Proverbs 16, 9 says this, In his heart a man plans his course, 
but the Lord determines his steps. Another verse, Ephesians 1.11. See, what the Bible says is the Lord is sovereign over all things. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Proverbs 21.1 puts it this way. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. And I could, I could fill up pages after pages with these kind of statements in the Bible, that the Lord is sovereign over all things. Yet, the Bible nowhere teaches that that means that human beings are robots, or they're just supposed to check out. Again, Proverbs 16.9 says, a man plans in his heart which way he should go, plans his steps, but the Lord is the one who's sovereign over what actually happens. In other words, you are to use all of your facilities, you are to use your brain, you are to use your friend's counsel, you are to use your understanding of the scripture to make the very best decisions you can. But at the end of the day, what the freedom to move forward comes not from knowing that you figured out this little puzzle so well. The freedom to move forward comes from knowing that the Lord is sovereign, even over bad decisions. The, the Bible nowhere promises that Christians are exempt from making bad decisions. We do it all the time. But the Bible also promises that God can bring life out of death. Even the death that comes into our life from bad decisions do not thwart God's purpose and God's will. And let me, let me tell you, if you're a Christian and you don't understand that, I don't know how you get up in the morning. I don't know how you get up in the morning if you do not know that God can bring life out of even the bad decisions that you make. The Bible, the Bible actually condemns those who would say, well, God's so sovereign, so good and evil, those are kind of meaningless concepts. Isaiah 5 says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. But the Bible promises that God can bring life out of death, and God can work all things, work all things for the good. Not that Christians are these Pollyanna kind of people who believe all things are good if you just had a spiritual perspective. No. But it's the sovereignty of Lord that undergirds and gives us freedom to make the best decisions we can. That's what the Bible has to say. We need wisdom. And the Bible tells us to ask God for it. The Bible is not a little rule book. There's a fascinating place here in Proverbs 26 where it says um, in verse 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And then in verse 5 it says, answer a fool according to his folly. Now, if you think that the Bible is a little book of rules, the question is when you're confronted with a fool... Will you answer him according to his folly or not according to his folly? Which verse are you going to obey, verse 4 or verse 5? Maybe what Proverbs 26 is trying to get you to understand is the Bible is not to be used as a little rule book where you just pull things out of context and say, ah, here's what I'm supposed to do. Rather, the Bible encourages you with the reality that life is difficult and confusing. You need to cultivate an understanding not only of the Bible but of the Lord that will help you. But ultimately, sometimes you just won't know what to do. And what do you do in those situations? You pray for the Lord to help you, and you make the best decision you can. Doesn't that seem like freedom? (laughs) It may not seem so spiritual, but it's what the Bible calls maturity. And so, I'll close with this. Be humble. I tell you, I've lived in Nashville now a long time, and I can't tell you how many people I meet who will tell me, I'll say, what brought you to Nashville? Say, well, the Lord told me I really needed to move here. Say, okay, interesting. What are you going to do when your life falls apart here in Nashville? What are you going to do when you get here to Belmont and you run out of money and can't pay for it anymore? 
Now, you not only have a difficult situation, but you have the added problem that you're beginning to wonder whether or not you heard God correctly. And generally, you will, you will look at yourself as the one to blame. Well, maybe I didn't really hear him, or maybe you weren't humble enough. <laughs> maybe the way you needed to understand it was, I think the Lord's leading me to go to Nashville. I don't really know. But you know what? The Bible doesn't promise that I'll know. It seems like a good decision. It may be a disaster. It may be a disaster that the Lord wants to bring into my life so that I'll be, be able to actually trust him more. But believe me, the last thing you need in the midst of trials is to begin to wonder whether or not you can hear God and what he has to say because you think that the way you need to hear God is just sort of like look inside yourself and somehow try to figure out which way he's leading you to go. It's the last thing you need. And I think the way Christians talk about this really messes them up. All right, I've had my say. What do you, what do you all think? Thoughts or questions? I've heard of the, the phrase, love Jesus and everything will work out. Yeah, yeah. Um, love Jesus and everything will work out. Well, what does that mean? I, I think generally people assume work out means a life relatively free of difficulties and trials. Um, if by love Jesus and everything works out, you mean God's will will be accomplished? Well, of course. Um, you're called to, you know, fear God and obey his commands. Ecclesiastes, the end of the book Ecclesiastes says, this is the whole duty of man, to fear God and keep his commandments. Um, so certainly you should do that. But does the Bible promise that everything will work out? Yeah, but who gets to define what working out means? You know, that's, that's, the, that's the big question. Um, if God gets to, dis- to define working out, well, yeah. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, the Bible promises. But it may not be in conformity with the, p- the purpose of your will. As a matter of fact, it probably will collide at numerous points. So I guess my, my concern is that Christians, particularly upper-middle-class American Christians, think that what God wants for them most is happiness. And the Bible nowhere promises that. The Bible actually says that happiness and holiness often come into violent conflict. And if the Lord wants to make you more and more like Jesus, should it surprise you that he uses suffering as one of his most powerful instruments? So I think a lot of people assume that if they could figure out God's will, it would lead them to a life of smoothness and relatively free of trials. And I think that's really ridiculous and sets Christians up for real huge crisis of faith in their life. I don't know. Follow up or what do you think? All right. See if anybody else got one, but if, if not, yeah, hey. You quoted a lot of Old Testament references. Yes. What do you feel about passages in the New Testament, such as having faith the mustard seed and asking so you can receive and knock and the door shall be open? Yes. Uh, I feel like, like those passages tend, tend, to, tend to undermine what I'm saying. Yeah, that, that you think that those kind of undermine what I've, what I've been presenting? Not undermine, but maybe... How to bring those into this. Yeah, okay, good. Let me talk about those two in particular. Um, seek, the door will be opened, ask, and um, all, all that kind of thing. It's good questions. I think that those passages, and what was the other one you mentioned about the faith like a mustard seed? Yeah. The Bible, the Bible regards faith as really this supernatural ability to, to see reality more clearly than unbelief. In other words, the Bible talks about faith as a supernatural ability to connect the life and death of Jesus to all things. It doesn't regard faith as sort of this internal barometer 
where you just can kind of be led this way and that way and know that God is the one leading you. Um, faith is always regarded in the Bible as connected to faith in something, faith in Jesus, and particularly faith in the work of Jesus as what allows you to stand in God's presence and be loved and accepted by him. The Bible does not regard faith as sort of this religious temperament where you're kind of more sensitive to sort of his wording or his leading. So I think we have a big problem the way we use faith a lot of times in the Christian church is really not the way the Bible uses it. So when it talks about having faith that would be like a mustard seed, it's not saying that faith is to be invoked like this power that allows you to change reality. Faith is, is, you know, the faith that Jesus is talking about is faith in his work. The disciples come one point and say to him in John chapter 6, for instance, what is the work that God requires? And Jesus says, it's to believe in the one he has sent. It's not to think that faith is sort of this power that you can evoke to get what you want. Now, you see some of the TV evangelists that, you know, definitely get that way out of whack. But I think a lot of evangelicals think of it that way, too. And so I I think that the the New Testament is consistent in that. I mean, James says, listen, don't say we're going to go and do such and such tomorrow. He says, say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. So it encourages this kind of humility and encourages us that, you know, lots of God's revelation is laid out for us, but it doesn't. I don't think the, the New Testament encourages the idea that faith is kind of this sensitivity. For instance, even in Galatians 5, I think it's 5 or chapter 6, where it talks about being led by the Spirit. You examine that in context. It's talking about following God's Word. It's not talking at all about being led in life decisions. But we talk about being led by the Spirit, like that's sort of him telling us what to do in life decisions. You look at it in its context. It's contrasted not with not knowing what to do, who to marry or where to go to school. It's contrasted with the, the, the flesh, the works of the flesh, and living a life of wickedness. So again, there, the leading of the Spirit is not regarded the way most Christians regard it. Yeah, I saw a hand in the back. The, uh, I think what you did, you know, talk about faith. Yes. It's not necessarily faith in something. You've got to move forward. That, that faith in the spoken of is. You've got to move. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think the way that faith frees us from being paralyzed is to know that Jesus lived and died in our place, and that confidence um, comes from understanding this relationship with God that's been reconciled through the work of Jesus. Faith in the Bible is never a concept disconnected from the work of Jesus. It's always faith in Jesus. It's not just an abstract temperament. That's important. Martin Luther was fond of saying, I always like this saying, he said, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. And, you know, faith is regarded as, you know, the most important thing for you to know God not necessarily a temperament where you can figure out what he's calling you to do as far as life decisions. I saw a hand over here. thought I did. Oh, okay. But now you're done. Okay. Well, uh, one more question before we go. Do you got one more? Yeah. Um, Psalm 37, 7 says, Bless the Lord, wait patiently for him. Yeah, good. Um, referring to him delivering you. What's the context? Yeah, it's referring to him delivering you. Wait patiently for his deliverance. 
It will come, maybe not according to your timetable, but it's not a verse that's saying, if you don't know what to do, just wait, and the Lord will tell you what to do. It's not saying that at all. And, and all of those kind of verses that you may have heard quoted as wait on the Lord and he'll tell you what to do, if you examine them in their context, they're referring to the Lord's deliverance, which often doesn't come according to our timetable. So, hey, you guys have been kind and patient. Thanks. Have a great fall break.